Thanks, Don. If you have a Bible, you can be making your way to um, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, beginning in verse 62 through verse 15 of chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your worship guide. The text is printed for you there. Um, and if you are new here, if this is your first time here, welcome. We, we're, we've been in a series through the, the letter written by James to the churches in a, in a region around Jerusalem, and obviously we're taking a break from that series today to, you could say that we're focusing on the thing that makes sense out of everything that James would write, and really it's the thing that makes sense out of everything that all of the New Testament authors would write. It's the thing that makes sense out of Everything that happened in the first few centuries of the church, the only thing that can make sense out of a fledgling group of of people whose efforts would turn the entire structure of the Roman Empire on its head within a couple hundred years. Um, So let's read about it. And remember, what we're reading, this wasn't done in a corner. This is public record for all to see, corroborated by many witnesses And even more than that, we believe here that God speaks to us. So let's listen. Chapter 27, verse 62. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them. And said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes into the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were told. 
And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come now to your word, we, we ask for your help. We ask for the help of your spirit. We pray for the ability to see things that we can't see naturally, to understand things that our twisted up and distracted brains can't understand. And even more than that, we pray that you would give us the grace to believe it, to stake our life on it, and to trust you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This past week, our family during spring break went to the South Carolina Botanical Gardens, which is on the campus of of Clemson University. And uh, we've been there a lot. That's a favorite spot for me and my wife from from college days. And so we were walking through the garden, and it was its usual beauty, you know, manicured, well-kept, no weeds, very orderly, and things are blooming, and blooming, you know, things are blooming there that are not blooming here yet. And... um, as you know, as all well-kept gardens are, it's kind of an oasis of life, right? You kind of forget about the outside world as you're walking through it. Until I started to hear a noise. And it wasn't the noise of, we all know, most of you have probably been like following the master's live stream. You know how they pipe in the sound of the birds chirping and nature in the live stream? It was not that. And I, as we got further, I realized what I was hearing was the sound of a, like a, a backhoe and a bobcat, these earth-moving machines on the other side of the garden. And um, it, it was the literal crunching of trees and plants and shrubs and undergrowth as I'm walking through the pristine garden. And, and it turns out they're, on the other side, they were widening the highway and um, the construction encroached onto the camellia garden area. You're walking on the path, and two feet away is like the erosion control fence. And you just kind of, what is happening here? And, um, that, you know, that's not to, that's, I don't offer that as a criticism of what they're doing. I'm sure they have reasons why they're widening the highway. I'm sure they'll protect the garden while they're at it. But I just, as I stood there, I thought, there's, there's something about this moment that feels true to life. Like, here's this thing of beauty. And, and the, the, the look and sound of plant life. And yet, as I'm standing here, I hear the sound of plant death just nearby. And um, I couldn't help but think of the significance of this week in the life of the church and the significance of the news that we celebrate. And, and by the way, let me just acknowledge, we don't assume that everybody here is a Christian, that you profess faith in Christ. Uh, welcome wherever you're at in, in that, uh, in that uh, place. But you should know this, you live in a world where the sound of death is all around you. And more than that, the sound of death is even inside of you. And yet, this is the day that we celebrate the fact that God has brought into this world of death a garden, life, something that is intended to actually take over all the little pockets of death in the world eventually. Uh, what we see in our passage as we look at it today, to say it differently, is, is that the resurrection of Jesus has inaugurated what we might call the culture of life. And that makes a demand of you, and it makes a demand of me, that we turn and leave behind the culture of death wherever we find it. So as we walk through this passage today, let's, let's talk about both of those. Let's talk about the culture of death 
and then the culture of life to which we're called. First, culture of death. There there are two distinct groups of people in this passage. You, You may have noticed them. We meet the first group in verse 62 of chapter 27. There are these people called the chief priests, and then there are Pharisees. These are those who represent the leadership of the Jewish people, right? The those who are in charge, religiously, governmentally. And then we meet Pilate, the Roman governor over that area who represents Roman power. And you might recall history, um, the the Jewish people are a conquered people at this point. Uh, They're not happy about it. Rome has taken over the world. It's taken over them. They have some freedom, but not the freedom that they want. And those two groups are not friends, right? The, The Jewish people resent Roman rule. And the Romans... Look at the Jewish people as just, who are these peculiar, strange people with their peculiar, strange practices? Interestingly, one of the things that we're told about the crucifixion of Jesus is that 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 period of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus brought together Herod, the king of the Jews, and Pilate, the governor of the Romans. And it says, they on that day became friends, this unholy, strange alliance. And we see that continue in this passage right here. Both groups, Jewish and Roman leadership, come together, and soon they're joined by the muscle of the outfit, right? This this group of guards. And what is it that they want? Look at verse 63. On one level, they assume that the followers of this imposter, Jesus, who they executed, are going to try to steal his body from the tomb. Because apparently this guy went around saying that on the third day after they executed him, he was going to rise again. You know what's interesting is that they remember that. The disciples are nowhere to be seen. And you get the sense that they forgot completely that Jesus said that. But the Roman and Jewish authorities did not forget. And they say, okay, they're going to come and steal his body and perpetuate this fraud, this fraud that he rose from the dead, and that that fraud will be worse than the first, which is that he ever claimed to be the Messiah in the first place. And so what do they want? Give us a guard so that we can make sure that this tomb stays, stays shut. But what is it that they really want? You ever think about that? What is it that they're after here? They want to protect their own interests. It's the same thing that led them to arrest and crucify Jesus in the first place. Jesus shows up as a direct threat to their power, not because he's another Jewish insurrectionist, which they had had many. It's because he shows up proclaiming a kingdom that is not of this world and um, talking about freedom that's the kind of freedom that would make his followers obey God rather than men if it comes to it. And he calls his people to this higher allegiance than Herod or Pilate. He's a threat to their influence and their status. He's a threat to their power. And right there you see here is one of the primary values of the culture of death. Power, getting it, keeping it, protecting it at all costs, keeping our influence and our status. These must be protected, whatever may come. And so they ask for a guard, and Pilate tells them, you see, Pilate's interesting yet again. He tells them, you have your own guard. Why don't you just use that? Pilate yet again wants to wash his hands of the situation, keep himself kind of distant from it, and he is just as complicit here as he was at the crucifixion of Jesus by not believing what he has seen. He is complicit in perpetuating an evil, and that is also part of the culture of death. 
Do not believe, do not engage, keep a cool, wary distance, and make sure that you take care of yourself when truth is actually on the line. And so they take a guard, and they make it secure as they can, which is a great line from the, from the gospel writer there. They will not be able to make it secure enough. So they rely on guards and muscle and power, and they rely on fear. Uh, flip over to 2811. And what happens when the guards realize that the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb? Look at the tactics that they resort to. They run back to the priest, and the priest assemble the elders, and they come up with a scheme. They give money to the soldiers. They pay them off to to go around to people and to, to tell folks, look, we fell asleep, and while we were asleep, his disciples came and stole the body. It would be tantamount to death for a soldier to fall asleep on guard like that. And so the Jewish leaders say, don't worry, we'll take care of this in the eyes of the Roman governor. We know that your life is in peril here. And, and this, they took the money as they were directed. And they spread the story, which was apparently still circulating when Matthew writes his account here. But look at the tactics. Power, fear, a cover-up, a payoff, protecting a reputation, self-preservation, institutional protection at all costs. We must make sure that nothing threatens us. Do you notice not the Jewish leadership or the Roman leadership seem to stop and consider what's actually happening here? No, nobody's stopping to ask the question, yeah, but, yeah, but, but did a man rise from the dead? Nobody's asking that question. It's part of the culture of death not to ask that question. It's part of the culture of death not even to think to ask that question. It's part of the culture of death to assume that doesn't happen. What matters most is that we protect ourselves. Now, in many ways, what we're describing, we would just call normal life, right? This is just life on planet Earth, right? The heartbeat of the world that lives with its brokenness and fracture. But did you notice where it leads? It always leads to the same place. We, we could just call it, it leads to faithlessness. Heads in the sand. Uh, the assumption that resurrection, that doesn't happen, even if it does happen, who cares? It doesn't have anything to do with me. It leads to a willingness to do anything and everything to keep your power and protect your interests. When you have those things in the driver's seat, when those are the values that dictate your life, you will find yourself, maybe to your own shock, doing some pretty horrific things. The culture of death preferred power over preserving the life of the very innocent Jesus. And so they killed him because he was a threat. Because when you need to protect power above all other things, killing is just the cost of doing business. The culture of death preferred keeping people afraid rather than letting them experience anything closer to freedom. Why? Because free people might want to rebel and overturn the system, and we can't have that. So fear tactics become the norm. The culture of death prefers covering up the truth if necessary because we can't have anyone knowing or thinking anything that makes us look bad or that causes me to lose standing. The culture of death will always use money to smooth it out because a little payoff is worth keeping us out of trouble with the powers that be because they are the real powers. That's what we expect, right? It's their world. It's our world. 
You don't, you don't have to look hard at all to see the culture of death at work. It's how you stay on top. It's how you win. It's how you get something for yourself, how you protect your tribe and your interests. A quick read over any headlines of any news source will display all of those things in grotesque detail. <clears throat> your temptation and mine, though, and we say this a lot around here, our temptation is to say, yep, you're right, Hobie. All of that bad, evil stuff is out there. It's just horrible. I mean, look at this world going to hell in a handbasket. What a train wreck. But as we say often around here, the problem isn't just out there. It is in here. And moreover, it's in here. Uh, we can have all of those assumptions. Even if you're here and you profess faith in Christ, we can pay lip service to the resurrection and the culture of life, and then we make our money and we live and die by the culture of death. Christians can be just as addicted to power and influence as anybody else. Christians can profess faith and live faithless lives in spite of all the evidence. Wherever you're at spiritually this morning, do, do, do you see that at play in the world and at play in your family and at play in your own heart? Do you feel the internal contradiction of knowing what is supposed to be happening and yet what is actually happening? Does that make sense out of your world? Um, let's, let's talk about the assumptions of most people for just a moment. Most people in our world, and again, that may be you here, believe that death is final, and so we need to live it up while we can. So the thing that drives them is I have to squeeze every ounce of life out of every experience because once it's over, it's over, and this is it. And serving other people is only useful in as much as it brings a benefit to me. And if it doesn't, then who cares? This life is all, of, all I've got. Um, others are driven by the idea that, um, and this is happening increasingly in our world, if there is a God, and we're not certain there is, he really <clears throat> isn't interested in us, and he doesn't seem to be very powerful and so there's really no reason to bother with, with belief, with faith, with religion, with morality, with church, with any of that kind of organized stuff. And it's argued, <clears throat> these things have done more harm than good, to which all of us in this room probably ought to say, um, there are times when that criticism has been well earned. We don't need to protect the institution either. Um, others assume that, yeah, there's evil in the world, <clears throat> but... Let's be honest about how life works. It's survival of the fittest. No one or nothing is going to protect you. It's up to you. You are your own advocate. And, and so if you have to run over a few people to get what you need, so be it. There's always collateral damage. And when we live based on those assumptions, and again, that, this, is just, this is not saying anything crazy. This is just what most people in our world assume. When we live by those things, the lines between what is good and what is evil get all confused and blurred and messed up. I was thinking about that this week, and um, there's a quote from one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, where um, George Clooney's character Everett has escaped with his two friends, Pete and Delmar, and they've run off to uh, Pete's cousin's house. Great name, Wash Hogwallop. And um, in the night, Wash ratted them out to the cops for money. And so the cops show up. And as they're making their escape and running away, 
Pete's, this is set in the 1930s uh, Depression era. Pete's cousin, Wash, yells back, I'm sorry, Pete, I know we're kin, but they got this depression on, and I got to do for me and mine. And of course, Pete replies, I'm going to kill you, Judas Iscariot Hogwallop, right? It's a great line. But uh, I thought of that little interchange and thought, that, that's it. Uh, Wash Hogwallop's words, I got to do for me and mine. That is the heartbeat of every human being that lives in our world today. That is the value system of the world in which we live. Loyalty, kinship, morality, service, and honor gets all tangled up and twisted when that is the driver in our lives. Uh, Do you see that? You see it in your own life. And here's the other thing. Do you ever hope that there's something better? Have you grown weary of the way the world is? Do you get sick of the way the world works? Do you ever get sick of the way that you work? Because the first step of coming out of the culture of death is to realize that you're in it and to begin to see it for what it is and not just to see it for what it is, but to get sick of it and to hate it and to long for something better, that maybe there's something that is different than this. Let me invite you this morning to a holy dissatisfaction with the way the world works and with the way your own heart works. A holy discontent. It's not supposed to be this way. Uh, All right, well, let's close in prayer. This was a great sermon. We've had a good time, right? Um, is, is there any, what, can, what can change this? What can overturn all of this? Let's talk about the culture of life. It's a second very different group of people that we see in chapter 28. Could not be more different, really. The others were those who had power and position, and so they wanted to defend it. The people we meet in chapter 28 are women. Mary Magdalene, Mary, and, and we know from parallel accounts, two other women at least. And they're going to the tomb to see it and to continue the the service to the family, which was their custom of the day of putting spices on the body, that these were women who were devoted to Jesus and they're devoted to his family, and so they're doing this act of service. Do you notice there are no men who are showing up to do this? The disciples are a long way away. They came because they loved Jesus and his family, but they also came because this was considered women's work. They would render them ceremonially unclean in their day. They would have to go outside the camp for a full week uh, to, to be welcomed back into the people of God, the Jewish people. It was the work of a servant, the work of someone who had a lower standing. This is not prescriptive for us. Uh, don't shoot the messenger. This is just how it was, right? This is the ancient world. These women are the first to be at the tomb. And they are the first to experience the earthquake in verse 2. And they are the first to see the brilliant, radiating angel that displays something of the holiness and majesty of God Almighty. They see him. And they see the tomb with the stone rolled away. And they're the first to hear the words that changed everything. He's not here. He's risen from the dead. And they're the first to be told to go and tell someone about it. Go and tell his disciples. This was in a day, again, don't shoot the messenger, when in both Jewish and Roman courts, both, uh, a woman's testimony was not valid. The assumption was women don't tell the truth, so their testimony is not to be received in court. 
which makes this amazing. When God Almighty chose who he would reveal his resurrected son to first, he chose those in the eyes of everybody in that culture, he chose those who were the lowest, those who were lesser, those who were diminished, those who were servants. He chose the people who have absolutely no power. The culture of life comes to the lowly. And it comes to those who begin to see themselves associated with the lowly. The culture of life comes to the people who realize, I, I, I don't have any power to defend. And if you are in a position of power, I, you gladly learn to, to give it up or not to identify yourself by it. Why? Because you identify with the lowly. Because you understand who you actually are. Notice the different value of the culture of life. The culture of death wants power at all costs. Everything in verses 1 through 10 is bent around one person. And what did that one person just do? He who had all authority just gave up his power. That's what happened at the cross. He gave it up entirely. The angel tells them Jesus isn't here because he was raised just like he said. When Jesus, Look at verse 9. Jesus meets the women and greets them. And they fall down, and you notice they grab hold of his feet physically. These are nail-scarred, physical, glorified body feet that they grab. And they worship him, and he does not stop them because he's God. And he tells them to go, not be afraid, but tell the disciples. Tell them, tell them what? Tell them what? That the one who's dead was alive? That the one who gave up all power at the cross now has all power? And authority. That the kingdom has actually come, that all of those promises are actually true, that death has been overturned, and that they can see him with their eyes and touch him. And Thomas will show up and say, No, 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 I didn't see him. I don't believe this bull. He says, I won't believe unless I unless I see and I touch the holes in his hands. And Jesus shows up and says, Here, touch them. Um, consider that you're one of these women and that you have no cultural voice and that you have no cultural power. You're regarded like a child. Nobody really takes you seriously. And you just saw a radiating angel and you just touched the feet of the risen Jesus and he just gave you whose word doesn't hold up in cultural court. He just gave you the task of going and telling the disciples. Hey, um, I know that this has never happened before, but he, he rose from the dead. What, what are you going to need to do that overwhelming task? You're going to need some courage, right? Notice the angel appears to the women, and the guards are there too. You know what a Roman guard is, or well, in this case, it's a Jewish guard. doesn't matter. You know what one of these guards was like? They're, they're trained to kill folk. That's what they do. They're not, they're not afraid of much. And they tremble and become like dead men when they see an angel. That's what happens when you bump into something that radiates the holiness of the God who made the world. And the angel doesn't address them. Seems like they're supposed to just stay afraid. He does address the women. Do not be afraid. First thing that Jesus tells the women when he sees them, do not be afraid. First thing he says when he appears in a room, peace to you. 
You could argue that one of the first phrases that someone needs to hear when they encounter the real, risen, powerful, glorious Jesus Christ is this. Do not fear. Why? Because the thing you fear most has been conquered. You don't need to be afraid of death anymore. Uh, Jesus promises resurrection, new life, new heavens, new earth. There's a certain future. You don't need to be afraid of the future anymore. Uh, Jesus' very presence gives life to your bones and energy and motivation to your entire mission in life. So all the things that we used to be afraid of have begun to evaporate because of the presence of the risen Jesus. And in fact, he turns fear to the only place where it should be directed, fear the Lord only. And if you find yourself fearing the Lord and humbling yourself before him and falling like these women and grabbing his feet and worshiping him, an interesting thing happens. You become bold as a lion. You develop a a backbone of steel. You develop this ability to die a martyr's death if need be because Jesus is absolutely worth it. The culture of life is a culture of courage. It's provided because of the risen Jesus. It's needed because the risen Jesus has work for us to do. And and, and you'll notice in verse 8, it leads to something else. This courage leads to a, a fear that is also a joy. They left in awe and joy. I'm not certain that that little phrase would describe most Christians today, uh, maybe at points, but have you ever met, you ever met a joyless Christian, super stoic, just very dead, kind of like George Costanza used to talk about, his, he said, my mom has never laughed, not once, not a chuckle, not a teehee, and I, think, I heard that and I thought, that, that is a lot of Christians, there's no laughter, no joy. Some of you have known very different Christians who they have a um, crazy-eyed, happy-clappy, saccharine, sugary, sweet, non-realistic face. And nothing has ever gone wrong for them. And that just feels weird for a lot of reasons. What a different picture that's described here. Deep awe and real joy. Seriousness and devotion and delight. The ability to laugh, the ability to worship, if you're going to be someone who opens his or her mouth into the culture of death and say that someone broke this and is fixing it and he demands that we leave it and come over to the culture of life, you had better have a spine of steel and the ability to laugh at the days ahead and a relationship with Jesus such that you know him and love him and you know his love for you such that you draw all strength and hope from his very presence. How how do you become that kind of person, this awe-filled, joyful, courageous person who identifies with the lowly, serves the needy, tells the world about Jesus, lives a hopeful life when you're surrounded by death and destruction? Well, first of all, it only makes sense if Jesus actually rose from the dead. Uh, But we need to just say this, because in our day, plenty of people talk about the resurrection as an idea, an archetype, a metaphor. And, 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 you know, this is the famous time of year when all of the major news outlets publish, you know, uh, scholarship about how, well, actually, they found his body in a tomb next door, blah, 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 blah. Um, To which we say, along with Christians throughout the ages, including the authors of the New Testament, if it really didn't happen in actuality, if he didn't actually rise from the dead in a body, go home. 
go home and do whatever the heck you want because this is a joke and a sham. That's not me. That is the Apostle Paul and every Christian that's ever lived throughout the whole ages. The the burden of proof was on the first disciples. If they're saying a man rose from the dead, you better believe they had reasons, eyewitnesses, people they could point to to say, oh yeah, this person saw him, this person saw him, this person saw him. Go talk to them. The burden of proof is on you if you say he rose from the dead. If you're someone that's struggling with the evidence for the resurrection, that is not uncommon. And you're not the first and you won't be the last. And my, my encouragement to you today is you need, this is too serious for you to just put in a corner of your brain somewhere. If a man rose from the dead and promises a new kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth and life eternal, you need to take that seriously. Let's talk through this. I'd love to meet with you. We have others here who will listen to your questions. We can read stuff together. Let's, let's see if there's evidence, right? Let's see if there's credible evidence for this thing that has happened. Others of you may be here and you're struggling to just connect the dots with, how does this have anything to do with with your life? Um, That's a different conversation. Because because what we're being offered is is life, fearlessness, joy, hope that sustains us in our darkest days. How do you get there? You're going to have to do what um, the culture of death won't allow. You're going to have to believe. And this side of heaven, it requires faith. It requires it. The the women believed, and they worshiped, and they obeyed. We're going to have to identify ourselves with with the lowly and understand our need for Jesus, and we're going to have to believe. What's involved in in that believing? That requires you a, a twofold motion. You're going to have to give up on the culture of death, realize it can't give you what it promises. You cannot get your significance and your identity You can't get any sense of atonement or forgiveness or mercy for your worst moments. You can't get that from the world because the world just wants power and plays on your fears and leads to lies. It can't happen and it leads to to despair. Um, And you're going to have to turn to something greater. If If you're weary of trying to make everyone pleased with you, if you're weary of trying to find a fulfilled life, and to squeeze out every drop of it for yourself. If you're weary of trying to carve out an identity and then force everybody else to to see it as you see it, if you're weary of trying to measure up or strive or work, or if you're weary of going through all the roller coaster emotions of being on your own in a world that doesn't care about you, hear this. God the Son, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life that we can't, And he died a death that we've earned. If we want justice in the world, and we better, because if there's no justice in the world, all the wrongs that you and I observe are never righted. But justice is a two-edged sword. If there is justice, the sword turns on us too. Who will save me from the justice of God, for my rebellion against him, for my self-centeredness? Jesus Christ died the death that we have earned because of our sin and rebellion. And he was raised to swallow up death forever and give us life. And he'll return to make all things new. If you want to become a fearless and compassionate person, both. If you want to do good to others and not be wrung out by others, 
If you want to give up on cover-ups and lies and power and money as the world for how the world works, believe in the one who gave up his power at the cross and became the powerful one at his death. If you've never believed that, we'd love to talk to you. If you have believed it, today's the day to let good news wash over your soul yet again and to be refreshed in it. The instruments of death are not going to stop. You're going to keep hearing them. What do you do when you hear them? Walk deeper into the garden. Walk deeper in. There are, there are depths that we have not gone to in walking with Jesus in this life. And the closer you get with him, it doesn't mean that the noise is going to stop. It, it won't stop until there's a new heavens and new earth. But the sound will get quieter because Jesus will become closer and nearer and dearer. Leave behind the culture of death and embrace the culture of life. And tell the world around you because they're miserable as well. Tell them about the garden. Here's the bedrock, historical, world-changing reality for me and you. He's not here. He's risen. Let's pray. We ask now, Father, for the ability to believe things that are unseen. You ask a hard thing of us, but you also give us, by your grace, the ability to do that which you command. You have commanded us to believe. Give us faith. I pray for anyone here who is not in a place where they have saving faith in Jesus. Would you meet them and give them that gift? A new heart. Ears that can hear. And for each of us, as we walk through um, the, the, all of the sounds of death around us and within us, give us ears that hear the voice of our King. Give us hope for the garden that you've planted here. And give us the grace to walk deeper into it, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen.